If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the April 26, 2021 edition of IMRU Radio Magazine, the world's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show, out front and out loud since 1974. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Tonight's special show is devoted to one man's story of a hate crime and its complex and frustrating aftermath. On the night of June 24, 2018, in Sacramento, California, Daniel Langford, a cisgendered gay man, was brutally assaulted. In his own words, he recounts the details of that night and his continuing struggle for justice. On June 24, 2018, I was working a summer job at Ashley Furniture. I had worked late that night. After work, me and some of the fellow co-workers, we kicked back a few beers. On my way home, I stopped for a six-pack of beer and some snacks. I had been approached by a man. I didn't know him, but I'd seen him before. And he asked me if I could help him with his car. His car had, uh, was, was disabled due to a flat tire, I believe that's what he said. The car where it was parked was probably maybe 30 yards from the parking lot of the store. And I walked over there with him, and I could see that the tire was flat. And I said to him, I go, well, why don't I contact my um, roadside assistants, see if I could help him. So that's what I did. And while we were waiting on the tow truck driver to come out, he had mentioned something about, well, did I have any tools or anything in my car or back at my apartment? And I said to him, I go, I don't believe that anything I have could help with this. You know, let's just wait for the tow truck driver, which came pretty promptly. And when he responded to the scene, um, I guess he ran the license plate. The tow truck driver said, look, I can't help you all with this. It's not your insured vehicle that's on the policy. Daniel, how did the man who was about to assault you respond to your not being able to help him? He said to me, he goes, well, you faggot, take me back to your apartment so we can go get some tools. You know, I know that you have something there. I don't really know what happened. That's when I got scared of him and tried to go to my car. I was just almost at the driver's door of the vehicle when he came around the back of the vehicle and he hit me in the face. And I went down to the ground, and he began repeatedly while he screamed, faggot, 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 kicking me in my penis. I laid there curled up in a ball, and apparently there was a bystander there. He fled on foot. The bystander picked me up, and I said, should I call the police? He said, look, if you call the police, you might get a DUI. So I went home. That's what happened. I didn't call the police immediately that night. I think initially I felt like it was my fault somehow that I had used poor judgment that evening, that I had been under the influence of alcohol myself. 
I was afraid of the DUI, of the police. I think that that was my initial feeling of turning it inward. You guys didn't know each other, but you knew of each other. I lived just off of the campus at Sacramento State University. I was a graduate student in a master's program majoring in social work. At the time, my neighbor and I were out here trying to help some of these people, mostly the women that I would help for clothing, for food. I was openly gay to the women that I was helping so that they would feel safe around me. And I know I had seen crap for that as I was helping one of these women out. Was there anyone you felt you could talk to about your assault? I had come into contact with a woman on a social work project called Social Justice Coursework that I was doing at the university. And she said, Daniel, you need to go to the police immediately. The longer that you wait, the more they're going to put the blame on you. So this man repeatedly kicked you in the groin. Yeah, and I don't know how many times he did that. I have no idea. It's kind of a blur. But why did he want to come back to my apartment? Why was he trying to force his way into my car? I don't know the answers to any of those things. What did you do? Believing that it was on the campus of Sacramento State University, I went to the campus police. And this is where one of the heroes in this story, and, I, and he knows that I was going to be speaking about him because I let him know his name is Officer Jesse Smith of the Sacramento State University Campus Police, who was advocating for me and trying to assist me through this whole thing. I gave him a description of this guy, and sure enough, they identified him as a convicted felon, and this is not alleged. He had two pages of armed robbery, domestic violence, various assaults, and drug charges. And he was sentenced to prison, I guess, in 2014 and had been released in January of 2018. Unfortunately, the incident happened just off of the campus grounds, so it fell into the jurisdiction of the city of Sacramento. What was your experience like in attempting to pursue justice with the city of Sacramento Police Department? I contacted the city of Sacramento, and this is where the story begins to deteriorate in terms of my pursuit. I reported the incident. I remember the officer came to my home. I told him of the injury, and literally, as he's listening to me, he took a step back from me in my living room when I told him that my penis had been mutilated. Daniel, what was the extent of the damage to your penis from the assault? Apparently, from the trauma of being kicked there, there was such internal damage that it really was a urology emergency. My penis began to sort of cade in and completely bent to a 90-degree angle to my left, like as if it almost had been cut off. When I uh, told the officer of the Sac City Police Department of the injury, he asked me if I had known him, explained to him, this is what I explained to you about how our encounter was with the homeless people. That Right there is where the real horror of this journey begins. This is Michael Taylor Gray with IMRU, and you're listening to my interview with hate crime survivor Daniel Langford. What happened to the report of the assault that you gave to the officer from the city of Sacramento? He took it back to the city of Sacramento to turn it over to the detective. There were two witnesses, State Farm and the bystander, who picked me up out of the parking lot. The police... The sergeant suspended that case. They refused to investigate it. And there's a whole process that I learned the hard way 
that once the police officer reports the incident and it goes to a detective's desk, they take it from there, they interview the witnesses, they conclude an investigation, and then they turn it over to the district attorney, and then the district attorney will decide whether or not they take the case and prosecute or not. That is what I found out through my journey. What were your expectations going into filing this report, and what was your reaction to the actual experience that you were faced with? When I went to the city of Sacramento and reported this incident and the police officer came to my home, he told me if I had come that night, even if you were laying there on the ground in pain, and this felon did not have an outstanding warrant for his arrest, I would have issued him a ticket because an assault in California is considered a misdemeanor. He said that right now we've got felons out here and people who've murdered on the streets have been released from prison due to Proposition 47 or going around here assaulting business people who are trying to go to their jobs downtown, and we cannot do anything. How did California Proposition 47 affect assault cases like yours? Proposition 47 was presented to California voters in 2014. I voted for it. What it said to the California public and to its citizens was that for people who had committed nonviolent offenses, could be considered for parole or release to assist in emptying out California's prison population, which was exploding. That's what we were led to believe. But anybody gets out. Daniel, what kind of mental and emotional challenges have you faced? The first initial reaction that I had to the police, I was saying, look, this is what I'm going through. And I don't know if I can deal with it mentally, which was probably correct because I had post-traumatic stress disorder, which has been just recently diagnosed from the assault of dealing with a system that failed me. What convinced you to keep seeking justice? Pushing through with the gay community, Lambda Legal, the LGBTQ anti-violence project in Los Angeles, the various attorneys that I spoke to, and the utter failure to advocate on my behalf for police discrimination. I was a gay man with a mutilated penis from a hate crime. Nobody cared. I meant nothing. And I can't even begin to even tell you what the personal side of me that was just devastated dealing with my body that someone did that to me from a place of hate. Land Illegal, the Human Rights Campaign, and PFLAG, and the LGBTQ Center of Los Angeles, these institutions were built on the AIDS pandemic and crisis. And you're not going to tell me that today, violence, especially in this hustle environment, we just witnessed with these neo-Nazis and domestic terrorists, that LGBTQ people's injuries and murders aren't a crisis. We don't have the resources or the attention that we need. In part two of my interview with hate crime survivor Daniel Langford, we'll discuss the ramifications of and inequities created by California propositions affecting incarcerations and victims' rights, as well as the systemic failures within our policing infrastructure and the inability of the LGBTQI community to protect and defend its own. We'll be right back with the rest of Daniel's story after this quick break. Walt Whitman comforts comrades coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. In 1862, as the Civil War raged on, poet Walt Whitman searched in desperation for his brother George, a wounded Confederate soldier. In finding him, he also found his calling, comforting the wounded and dying troops. Whitman wrote, I never before had my feelings so thoroughly absorbed to the very roots as by these huge swarms of dear, wounded, sick, dying boys. I get very much attached to some of them, and many of them have come to depend on seeing me and having me sit by them a few minutes, as if for their lives. 
Whitman composed poems about these so-called comrades, which were published in a collection entitled Drum Taps, the postscript to his Civil War career. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios of WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Alan Brown. Yes, it's true. You could have more friends, a better job, more money, and enjoy the kind of life you've always dreamed about. Homosexuals in America are better educated, travel more, and enjoy a higher standard of living than their straight counterparts. If you've ever sat alone watching television on a Saturday night, or felt like your life was going nowhere, maybe homosexuality is right for you. Hi, this is Margaret Cho, and you're listening to I Am Are You. Kisser and wound dresser Walt Whitman coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. During the Civil War, Walt Whitman spent many an hour as a volunteer nurse in Washington's hospitals, dressing wounds as well as comforting and embracing the wounded and dying soldiers. Whitman wrote to his mother of these experiences, saying, No men ever loved each other as I, and some of these poor wounded, sick, and dying men love each other. A number of new poems, newspaper articles, and books sprang from his hospital experiences. In his poem, Wound Dresser, he wrote, Many a soldier's loving arms about this neck have crossed and rested. Many a soldier's kiss dwells on these bearded lips. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Josh Behrman. Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and you're listening to IMRU Radio. Now back to our story. In part two of my interview with hate crime survivor Daniel Langford, we're going to talk a little bit more about Proposition 47 in California, which affected incarcerations and victim rights within the state, and have also magnified inequalities within the policing infrastructure and the inability of the LGBTQI community to defend and protect its own. Proposition 47 was passed by 60% of California voters in November of 2014 to allow non-violent offenders out of prison to assist with the overcrowded prison system in California and saving costs. And then, according to my research, the funds were supposed to be diverted into mental health care, job training, and other social services to assist those people to rehabilitate and to become members of society. But that's not what happened. According to my research from the Sacramento Bee newspaper in Sacramento, California, in December of 2016, the courts complying with the Proposition 47 initiatives terms had reduced 200,000 felony convictions to misdemeanors. Can felony convictions be violent crimes as well? A felony could be something else than violence, but it could be inclusive of violence. It's still a felony. How has that affected you in terms of your assault case? When I first learned of this was when I reported the incident the second time to the city of Sacramento police. The police officer explained to me that an assault and battery is considered a misdemeanor in California and that had he come to the scene that evening where I had been assaulted, which he did not, and there was no outstanding warrant even needing medical care, if that 
had not had an outstanding warrant at that moment, a ticket would have been issued as a citation misdemeanor to report in court. Their hands are tied and they can do nothing. So how does that make you feel as a survivor of a hate crime? Very powerless. What are you doing to take back that power? Part of it is telling this story. I would like to be doing more service work in my local community where I live now in Florida to assist those who have been victims of violence in some form or another when there is no support or assistance. What were the roadblocks that you faced in your next steps that you took in your search for justice? The city of Sacramento police, for whatever reasons that I do not know today, refused to complete the investigation for it to move on to a detective's desk. And then from there, they would consider whether or not it would go to the district attorney. My case had been suspended from being investigated. There were two witnesses identified at the scene that evening. The police refused to interview those witnesses. What can you do when the police won't investigate a complaint? file a complaint with internal affairs against the residing sergeant. And I did that. I took that step in addition to making several calls to the city of Sacramento that followed that asking for an LGBTQ friendly police officer to come back out and and retake the report. I got nowhere with any of that, nor did I ever get any answers from the city of Sacramento police on why that happened or why it wasn't happening. You had two substantiated eyewitnesses, and they refused to interview them? Correct. Did they give you any kind of response as to why they wouldn't interview these eyewitnesses? No, no, they did not. The driver from State Farm and the bystander who who helped you, did they willfully say, hey, I'm a witness. I'll speak to the police if you want me to. We never got that far. They were identified. I don't know what the witness's account of the recollection. I never got to that point. They were identified. It was up to the police or the detectives at the city of Sacramento to follow through and conclude or not conclude their stories. And that didn't happen. They would not interview the witnesses. They would not send a police officer back to me. They would not give me questions on my complaint and internal affairs against the sergeant and lieutenant that was residing over the case. Did you go to the media? I did. I went to the Huffington Post. I went to the LA Times, the San Francisco Chronicle. I even reached out to a friend at The Advocate in Los Angeles. I reached out to the Washington Post, the Sacramento Bee. Nobody would return my call or provide any assistance. Did you reach out to any of the resources within the LGBTQI community? I contacted Lambda Legal in Los Angeles, and I contacted the Los Angeles Anti-Violence Project. What was the end result of all of those communications? The end result was, from Lambda Legal's perspective, they have a list of attorneys that work around the country from New York to Chicago to San Francisco to L.A. Out of all the calls and attempts that I made, I only got one return phone call. She said to me, we handle LGBTQ employee discrimination cases. We do not accept a case with a criminal component. And what that was saying to me, Michael, is that I needed help some assistance at a macro level through gay representation through Lambda to find out what was happening with the police investigation, why that wasn't moving forward. What response did you get from the Los Angeles LGBTQ Anti-Violence Project? When I finally spoke to a man from the LGBTQ Anti-Violence Project in L.A., he said that we are so overwhelmed here with 
a lack of resources, money, and attention for this issue. They couldn't do anything. They couldn't help many people. And he even said to me that he would get back to me to see what he could do, and he never did. After another door seemed to be kind of cracked open, then quickly closed, what was your next step? I went to the LGBTQ Center in Sacramento, where I live downtown, to see if there was any assistance there. And I spoke to their legal representative. And then that's where I got even more disturbing information about what was happening at the micro level in the gay neighborhood there by the police. I was told that they will not come out when there is uh, reported assaults. They will not investigate. There's been murders there in downtown Sacramento. The community center there was not set up to provide any support or services for a victim of hate crime. And just keep in mind, there is a thing called a victim's fund, but a person would only qualify for that if it is a case that is accepted by the district attorney in your local county and they decide to prosecute that case. This is Michael Taylor Gray with IMRU, and you're listening to my interview with hate crime survivor Daniel Langford. You're talking about the next macro level, that if the district attorney is successful in prosecuting that case, then it would fall under the umbrella of the hate crime legislation that Obama put in place while he was president. So you literally have to win the district attorney lottery in order to have your case heard and prosecuted. And to get support services for victims of crimes. What were the attractive cases to the district attorney at that time and what was being pursued? I don't know. It kind of leads to our policy conversation and George Cascone, who initiated Proposition 47 and who is now a newly elected district attorney in Los Angeles. Basically, what George Cascone is doing is promoting policies to release prisoners, violent or not, where it's not being judged on its own merit for its violent crime. He's basically turned the conversation around as he did with Proposition 47, that the person who commits the crime is the victim and the people who become victims and the future victims to be and their families have no voice any longer. While still living in Sacramento, how did you learn of your alleged assailant's release from jail and what steps did you take to protect yourself? He was released. He had returned to the area, and I had been notified by Officer Jesse Smith of the Sacramento State University Police that he was in town. The alleged assailant who assaulted you. Yes, he's the alleged assailant. He had returned to the area and had been arrested downtown where I had moved for my safety. He's here. What do I do? File a restraining order. I'm not going to go into all of what happened in that ordeal. It was very stressful. I will tell you that from filing the restraining order in the courts in downtown Sacramento, I was advised by the clerk that due to the release of these prisoners from Proposition 47, California is advising its citizens to arm themselves to protect themselves. The clerk told me that. You're hearing things that you just can't imagine you'd be hearing. I could be walking to the grocery store. I could be on the train going to work. He could run into me, and there was no record of it legally anywhere. If anything happens, we need to have these two things documented. What were the two things? That this assault had happened. We had no assistance from the police. So in case something happened to me, at least through the restraining order, there was something. It brings him and me together. He did this, and that I had a restraining order that was approved because my life was in danger. You needed a restraining order that would establish that relationship between the assailant and the assaulted. Yes. Thank you. 
What was the end result of that attempt to get a restraining order? The first time I went to the court in September for the hearing, the police officer told me in the waiting room that he was inside, that he had been brought up from the Elk Grove jail. I I passed out. My legs buckled. I I felt very dizzy, and I got up to go to the bathroom and didn't make it. I guess the adrenaline made my legs just collapsed from the fear. He was not inside the courtroom when I finally went in. Is it normal to have the alleged assailant in the courtroom when you're seeking a restraining order? Well, that was what was so confusing about it, because when it initially was filed, they are not going to bring him in at the expense of driving and commuting him 35 miles from one part of town to another for this hearing. He was scheduled to be released from jail on September 30th. Why he was in jail, I do not know what he was arrested for. And it was during that time that I was able to successfully serve him with those papers about this hearing. What did the presiding judge at that first restraining order hearing say that set you back? The judge told me, she said, we can't hear your case today because he's not here. They made a mistake down in El Grave, and so your case is going to have to be postponed until October. And I said, Your Honor, I said, he's going to be released on September 30th. How are you going to make this man come to a hearing if he's not here this morning while he's incarcerated in October when he's not incarcerated? Not to mention, as I told her, that he had outstanding felony warrant in Kern County, and he's on parole. Why wasn't he being extradited while he was incarcerated in Sacramento County to where he had other criminal charges pending for him? All of it broke down, Michael. What was the judge's response to all of that factual information that you laid out before her? There was no response. The officer who was sitting at the front told me, he said, step back, Mr. Langford. And he came to me, brought my papers and said it was my responsibility to reserve him in jail for the second hearing which turned out to not be true either. What is your next step? That I was going to leave Sacramento because I was afraid. They were just going to let him roam free on the streets, and I just felt in my soul it was a matter of time I would be killed, especially now that I had served him with these papers. I would go to the last hearing for my restraining order, which I did, by the way, before I left Sacramento in October for the desert, and that was successful. The judge granted it without even asking me any questions at all. He just said, your motion is granted. And that's the only paperwork which I still hold in my possession that was my justice. But I want to touch on something that's really important about that restraining order that I found out even more information. When I got to San Diego County, I wanted to ensure that my restraining order was going to keep me safe. And when I contacted the local police, what I was advised in San Diego was that unless someone had been arrested in their county, they have no way of pulling up any records on anybody else. The counties cannot communicate with each other about his outstanding felony warrant waiting a court date in Kern County while he's in Sacramento County. In addition, these prisons that are releasing these these folks are not communicating with the police department, and the police departments are not communicating with each other. So they do not know where these people are. They're just roaming around. How would you describe the overall experience of trying to achieve justice for yourself and for your case? A very difficult process to go through alone as a gay man, dealing with my injury, very little support from family, with shame and guilt, being injured by someone or hurt or abused, and just go silently into the dark and disappear. At the end of the day, Daniel, what 
do you want to accomplish by sharing your story? At the macro level of our gay institutions, which, by the way, were built on the backs of millions who died in the AIDS crisis, that there is some representation, something, somehow to link resources to someone who could call maybe a toll-free number from their local gay community center if they reached out to them, that there is this network that if you've been a victim of a hate crime, call this number, and that there is representation within Lambda Legal to advocate against police discriminatory practices or whatever it may be. In addition, locating resources like therapy or maybe even money, who knows what the person may be going through, to assist them through the trauma of post-traumatic stress from being a victim of an assault, that no one would ever call the anti-violence project in Los Angeles or the land illegal in Los Angeles, and it couldn't help me. On a really wishful thinking list, talking about the policy and law aspect of California, I think it's about awareness to California residents of the danger that they're really in until it happens to them. To close out our conversation here, What would you like to say to that person who's listening to this, perhaps, and they've been the victim of a hate crime, an assault? What would you like to say to them? Don't give up. Don't walk away. Don't surrender. Take back your power. Report it to the police. You're not alone. We're here to help. Thank you for listening. If you feel that you are a victim of a hate crime because you are a member of the LGBTQI community, Call the LGBT hotline at 888-843-4564. That's 888-843-4564. Monday through Friday, 1 to 9 p.m. Saturday, 9 a.m. to 2 p.m. Reach out and get the help that you need. Hate crimes are different from other crimes. They strike at the heart of one's identity. They strike at our sense of self, our sense of belonging. The end result is loss, loss of trust, loss of dignity, and in the worst case, loss of life. And now a bit of legal housekeeping. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in the preceding interview belong solely to the interview subject and have not been independently verified by this show or the Pacifica Radio Network. As of this date, Daniel Langford's assailant has not been charged with the crime, nor, to the best of our knowledge, have the LGBT organizations he listed provided any further assistance. Although Proposition 47 saves California nearly $100 million each year in reduced prison spending, reallocating some additional dollars to mental health and drug treatment, it has had an unintended negative impact on cases like Mr. Lankford's. Okay, that's it for tonight. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer Steve Pride and Rainbow Minute producers Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Please follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio, and if you are interested in volunteering with IMRU in any capacity, email public at prideonscreen.com. That's public at prideonscreen.com. And a reminder, we're a global podcast, as well as a show broadcast by KPFK Los Angeles. You can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org. Also catch us at iTunes, Spotify, Breaker, Anchor.fm, CastBox, and Pocket Casts. Good night. 
My mama told me when I was young We are all born superstars She wrote ahead and put her lipstick on In the glass of her boudoir There's nothing wrong with loving who you are She said cause it made you perfect babe so hold your head up, boy, and you'll go far Listen to me when I say I'm beautiful in my way Cause God makes no mistakes I'm on the right track Baby, I was born this way Don't hide yourself and regret Just love yourself and yourself I'm on the right track Baby, I was born this way there ain't no other way Baby, I was born this way Baby, I was born this way Born this way There ain't no other way Baby, I was born this way I'm on the right track Baby, I was born this way Don't be a drag, just be a queen Whether you broke or evergreen Your black, white, beige, your lattice and Your Lebanese, your Orient Whether Life's disabilities left you outcast, but little tears. Rejoice and love yourself today, cause baby, you were born this way. No matter gay, straight, or bi, lesbian, tragic life, I'm on the right track, baby. I was born to survive. No matter black, white, or beige, or Track, baby, I was born to be brave